Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. I am Nia Marshall and today we are lucky to be joined by Oliver May and Jack Boswell. They will be discussing how the Association in Neurodiversity in Law plays a key role in promoting neurodiversity in the legal profession. Oliver May is the Vice Chair of Neurodiversity in Law. He is a barrister at Number 5 Barristers Chambers, specialising in personal injury and clinical negligence law. Jack Boswell is the Membership and GDPR Officer at Neurodiversity in Law. He's also a BPC student at the University of Law and an Athwat and Residential Scholar at Gray's Inn. Thank you both for joining us today. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Now, this may be obvious for some of our listeners, but others may still be uncertain. Could you define neurodiversity and what it's meant to be a neurodivergent person? And this this is to any of you, of course. Okay, well, neurodiversity is an umbrella term that encompasses many different conditions. They include autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia and Tourette's syndrome, amongst others. And essentially, these conditions are variations in the way that human brains function. In other words, it's differences in how people think. Now, those differences are likely to affect things like memory and communication, attention, sociability and mood. Of course, to an extent, everybody's brain is different from everybody else's. But people who have one or more of these conditions are a bit closer to the extreme ends of the spectrum. And that's why we're sometimes described as being neurodivergent. And so when we refer to neurodiversity in law, we mean the extent to which the legal professions are inclusive of neurodivergent people. And one thing I think it's important to mention at the outset is that neurodivergence is not necessarily a form of disability. Some neurodivergent people do identify as having a disability, but lots of others don't. So it's too simplistic when people attempt to just lump both things together. No, I think that's an important point that you just made, because most of the time persons just, as you said, lump lump them together and, and just categorize it as all disabilities. Now, we have just recognized that you spoke about the difference and I'm sure you're going to go on to to speak about celebrating the differences. Could you therefore shed some light on the importance of, of neurodiversity in the legal framework? Well, I think the legal professions have a huge amount to be gained from neurodiversity. I think there's at least three reasons for this. The first is that neurodivergent people can make excellent lawyers. There's no reason why they can't. And so if firms and chambers discriminate against neurodivergent individuals, then they're shooting themselves in the foot because they're depriving themselves of some of the best talent. The second reason is that the legal sector should be broadly representative of society as a whole. And 15% of our society is neurodivergent, and therefore at least some of our lawyers ought to be neurodivergent too. I think the legal professions risk damaging their credibility if they're perceived as some sort of homogenous group that arbitrarily excludes certain types of people. That's especially important when you consider the role that lawyers play in shaping our society and our laws. 
And the third reason why the legal professions can benefit from neurodiversity is that sometimes lawyers will have to represent clients who are neurodivergent. And they'll be in a better position to do so if either they are neurodivergent themselves or if they have colleagues who are neurodivergent whose experiences they can learn from. So what is clear here is that there is an emphasis on the celebration of diverse people within the the workplace, especially neurodiverse persons within the workplace. This brings us to our next question as it relates to the formation of neurodiversity in law. When was this association formed? As uh, fundamental to when it was formed is, is almost how it was formed. So our, our chair is a, a guy called Thomas. He sent out a tweet in, I think, March of this year, just asking an open question. Uh, are there any neurodiverse lawyers out there? Uh, are they able to tell me about what it means to be a neurodivergent lawyer? what the pathway is, what their experiences are, and so on. And from that, there were however many hundreds of retweets and likes and direct messages that he received, uh, including from, from me and from a number of other people who now form the executive of neurodiversity and law. And it, it started out as just a conversation between Thomas and a series of other individuals. It progressed from there to being just a WhatsApp conversation, bear in mind. All of this, of course, going on during lockdown while we're all shut up in our, our houses, as we are now once again. And from there, it led to a whole load of other remote conversations, then on Zoom. In discussion with everyone, it, it seemed like it was a useful gap in the market, as it were, that we could fill. There is a uh, huge importance that neurodiversity is, is reflected, is recognised, uh, but it's not a very well understood issue. And it's not, I mean, certainly, I would say society-wide, it's not particularly well understood and perhaps even less so within the legal sector. And given the absence of any organisation already in existence to put forward the, the case for why neurodiversity is important and why neurodivergent people are talented members of society who can make great lawyers, we saw that gap and we thought we should fill it with something. And in the meantime, some point between March and October, an enormous amount of work went in to build the structure of the organisation, establish exactly what our aims would be, uh, and ultimately led to our, our launch on the 1st of October when the website went live and then our launch event to gain some traction in the middle of October. Well, I must say congratulations on using the lockdown period um, to ensure that the workplace becomes more diverse or creates a space where we can discuss these, kind, these kinds of issues as we must continue to pray the legal profession as a place where we can uphold equality and diversity for all. Now, I know that you would have answered partially in that question why the association was formed, but I think we can still ask it here. No, of, of course. Um, neurodiversity is most commonly, not always, but certainly most commonly, a hidden attribute. And I use the word attribute because Jack has already discussed and already mentioned the fact that it's not always considered a disability by the person who has it, but it is a hidden attribute which comes with arguably pros and cons. The pros are that people don't need to discuss it if they don't want to, and that's really up to them. But the cons are that people don't see it, and so it isn't forced to come into the light. It isn't forced to be a topic that needs discussion. You know, if you look at Chambers' websites, you can flick through the profiles and you can see, broadly speaking, the colour of everyone's skin. Race is something that is there in the forefront and therefore demands discussion 
rightly so, of course. Broadly the same with gender. Of course, it's not quite as easy to assume someone's gender from their picture, but you can at least determine whether or not there's gender uniformity across a room full of people, generally by looking out. You can't do it with perfection. You can't be certain that that's accurate. But you can see often if there is diversity of gender. You can't tell with neurodiversity. You, you don't know. And because it's hidden, because it's not something that people have to talk about or forced to talk about, people, it seems, don't talk about it. The second element, I think, is that neurodiversity just needs a voice. That's something we already touched on in the previous answer, really. But it just isn't something that's been discussed very widely in the legal sector, and particularly at the bar. I can only imagine the searches that Thomas did on Google before deciding to reach out to Twitter. But I would imagine Twitter wasn't the first thing he went to to try and find out if there was some group of neurodiverse lawyers he could speak to. Then there were, but they were all disparate. They were all individuals all over the place. And so the fact that we can create this organisation, this entity that enables people to speak about it openly and have a, a focal point for those discussions uh, should hopefully be very useful to neurodivergent aspiring lawyers and neurodivergent lawyers already in practice. How can people join the association and become involved? Well, the best way to become involved is, as you say, to join the organisation. And you can do that on our website, which is neurodiversityinlaw.co.uk. And if you go onto our homepage, then there is a box that says join us. And if you click that link, then you're through to our sign up page. And we want to engage widely within the legal sector and build a really broad movement with as many people as possible. So that includes people with any form of neurodivergence and also allies. So you don't have to be neurodivergent to join us. You might know somebody who's neurodivergent or you might just want to know more. And whatever your reasons, then we would welcome you signing up. We welcome students at any stage of their legal studies and practitioners from across the legal professions. I know that most of the people listening to this podcast will be barristers or aspiring barristers, but please do tell your friends and colleagues about us, whether they're solicitors or clerks or secretaries or judges or whatever else, then we welcome all of those people. So we do know that people can reach out to you or contact the association via the website. In terms of social media platforms, how can they connect with the association? Could you give us the handles for those? Oh, well, that's right. So there is a page on our website uh, through which you can send us a message. But we're also on Twitter and we're at ND in underscore law. And we're also on Instagram and the handle is ND in underscore law there as well. So, yeah, please do follow us. Now, what does annual membership include? Well, there are loads of benefits to joining the organisation. Firstly, you get to attend the members only events, which include things like application clinics and CV clinics and lots of networking opportunities, too. You'll get priority attendance of larger events in the future where capacity is limited. We're going to be launching a mentoring scheme which will partner students with practitioners so that they can learn from the experience of each other. And we'll also tell you about job opportunities from allied organisations. You'll be kept up to date with all of the significant developments relating to neurodiversity and law. That will be through a newsletter. 
And we're also keen to engage with our membership. So we will invite them to contribute. For example, you'll be able to attend the AGM and contribute to our website and our newsletter. And also for practitioners, it's a really good opportunity to give something back. So by mentoring and speaking at events, you'll be able to encourage and inspire uh, the next generation of lawyers who are neurodivergent. And I should say that for practitioners who are giving up their time, there is no minimum time commitment. We'd be grateful for anything that you can contribute. And you don't have to be neurodivergent because I think, and we all think, that um, aspiring lawyers can benefit from experienced lawyers, whether or not they have a neurodivergent condition themselves. Just to piggyback on that point of, of Jack's, which I absolutely agree with, I think it's fair to say across all elements of uh, equality and diversity progress, allyship is essential for the same reason you need men to be engaged to try and promote feminist causes. We need non-neurodivergent people to be engaged to help us promote the neurodiversity cause. No, there definitely seems to be countless benefits that are derived from joining this this organization what is the price of membership as it relates to students maybe trainees and professionals yeah there is a cost attached to membership so it's five pounds for students which we figured is less than the cost of a pint in many parts of the country and it's 10 pounds for trainees and current practitioners and also when you sign up there is an option to pay it forward So if you want to, you can make a voluntary donation of £5 and that will enable us to give away a student membership to somebody who can't afford one. And if you'd like to take advantage of one of those paid forward memberships, then there's also information on the website about how you can do that. Now, we've had a thorough discussion on the association, um, when when and how it was formed, including why. I think it's only right that we discuss the aims and the mission of the association Now, what are the primary objectives of the organisation? Well, we see the purpose of neurodiversity in law simply to promote and support neurodiversity within the legal professions. And it is professions plural. It's across the bar, across the solicitor's profession, across uh, legal executives, across judges, as as Jack's mentioned, across clerks and other people involved in the legal professions. And to eliminate the stigma uh, that's often associated with people who think differently. Uh, With that comes for key aims. The first is to enable and encourage entry into the legal professions for aspiring lawyers who are neurodivergent in some way. Uh, To clarify, we're not going to ever ask you to uh, prove your neurodivergence to us. This is very much a self-identification issue. We have no interest in checking people at the door. This is about who people are themselves and how they identify themselves. The second point is to build a supportive network, uh, to create a network of legal professionals who are able to celebrate their neurodiversity and the neurodiversity of their colleagues. The third is to take an anti-discriminatory approach and to encourage providers of legal services to adopt an anti-discriminatory approach both in their practice and in their recruitment. And finally and fourthly, to work collaboratively with other equality and diversity support networks to help foster a more diverse and accepting legal profession across the board. In other words, to be allies to other equality and diversity support networks. What steps have the association taken in order to achieve these aims? There are a few steps we've taken so far. Uh, Firstly, I think arguably formation is probably the the main one we've done, um, given we're tackling an issue that wasn't really being addressed in any 
meaningful, wide-ranging way. Uh, formation's a huge first step we took and uh, certainly one that was a big barrier in the first place. Uh, we, we've had our launch event early on to try and spread the word. Uh, we've spoken to the Inns of Court, including Grays, for which we're very grateful to be included on this podcast. Uh, we've also appeared uh, at a panel event for Lincoln's Inn, which I believe was a qualifying session about equality and diversity in the profession. We attended the Bar Council's Pupillage Fair. Uh, we've attended a few other law fairs as well. We've spoken to the specialist bar associations. We've spoken to Aspiring Solicitors, which is a, an organisation specifically promoting the entry of neurodivergent uh, wannabe solicitors into the solicitors profession. And we've also had a recent conversation with the chair of the Bar Council's Equality, Diversity and Social Mobility Committee. Now, I appreciate that's a long, slightly tedious list, arguably, of things that we've done. But broadly, what we're doing right now is we're getting the word out there. We're really promoting the issue because, as we've discussed already, it doesn't get spoken about enough. Uh, It's not well enough known and people simply aren't aware of it through no fault of their own. So many of our current aims and many of our current actions are getting people talking about exactly this issue. Well, it does definitely sound as though you guys have taken many steps um, to interact with other organisations in order to get the word out and to assist in eliminating the stigma. Now, I think it's only logical to ask about uh, any projects that the association has undertaken or will undertake in the the future um, that's necessary in order to promote the benefits of neurodivergent individuals within the legal profession. Yes, absolutely. So one of the projects is an ongoing series of interviews that are on on the Neurodiversity in Law website. And those interviews are written interviews predominantly, and they are with neurodivergent practitioners across a variety of areas of law. The purpose of which really is so that aspiring lawyers can see that, you know, the pathway to becoming a practitioner does exist and that there are people who have conditions similar to theirs and attributes similar to theirs who, for want of a better phrase, have made it and are in the profession they want to join. Uh, Another of the projects is something called uh, Coffee Talks, and that's something that's coming up in the relatively near future, which is going to be a series of informal discussions between one or more practitioners, normally one, but occasionally there'll be more practitioners and a a select few number of uh, student attendees, uh, where there's going to be a really informal discussion about things as far as their practice, things as mundane or personal as their interests, and things as specific as tips on how to apply and how well to approach interviews and so on. Uh, We're also putting on uh, panel events for both pupillage applications and training contract applications, and invariably each of those will be in time for the current round of the application window. So the pupillage application panel will be in advance of the deadline, the upcoming deadline for pupillage applications. And we are going to be appearing at a couple of other events, external events. I think one is coming up with BPP, for example. Those projects will definitely be very beneficial to your members. Earlier in the interview, you disclosed the different types of neurodiversity. Now, I think sometimes there's a lack of information or knowledge as it relates to the benefits that employers can can gain from embracing neurodiversity. Could you kindly shed some light on on this issue? 
Certainly. I think one thing I should just say is I gave a list of examples of neurodiversity towards the start of the podcast, but it wasn't an exhaustive list. And in fact, the list of conditions is almost endless, hence why I, I didn't try and recite them all. Um, but I think your question is a really important one, because one of the things that we're keen to stress is that neurodivergent people think differently than neurotypical people, but not necessarily any better or worse. I mean, there are definitely challenges associated with being neurodivergent, which is why some people might need reasonable adjustments to be made. But there are usually strengths that come along with them. In fact, the genes that are associated with various types of neurodivergence are known to have existed for thousands of years. And the reason why they've survived in the gene pool is precisely because they have certain evolutionary advantages. So, for example, autism is associated with high levels of focus and having a very good memory. People with ADHD tend to have high levels of energy. And people with dyslexia are likely to be more empathetic and more creative than the average neurotypical person. And I also think that most neurodivergent people are quite adaptable and generally quite resilient because they've had to use their relative strengths to overcome the various challenges of being neurodivergent. So I think it's really important to move away from the idea of neurodivergence as a form of weakness and to start thinking of it in terms of difference. And on that point, I think there is sometimes a tendency to think that all neurotypical people think in the same way, and that all people with dyslexia think in the same way, and that all people with autism think in the same way, and so on. But that's just not the case. There are very significant differences within those categories, as well as between them. So when people are dealing with neurodivergent individuals, they should try as much as possible to understand what their condition means for that person and to take a very individualised approach to whatever their needs might be. So what, what action uh, do you, you propose is needed to overcome the challenges? For example, um, the challenge of encouraging others that thinking differently is an asset to the legal profession. So the challenges that we face in and promoting the uh, the interests, shall we say, of neurodiverse uh, people are, are difficult to define and, and difficult to specify. I think it's fair to say there are probably two fundamental challenges. One is simply a lack of knowledge of the subject, a lack of awareness of what it means, a lack of awareness of what the issues are, and therefore a lack of an awareness of how to promote the interests of neurodiverse people and how to eliminate the barriers. And I think the second is something we touched on very briefly at the start, the stigma of neurodiversity. Now, even when I was at school, and that was relatively recently for a barrister, albeit some 20 years ago or whatever, dyslexia was almost, and this is absolutely not a phrase I would ever use outside of <laughs> specifically disparaging it, was synonymous with, for want of a better phrase, the thick kids, right? And that's, that's a horrendous way to approach things. And it's, it's simply a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on. Uh, as Jack's touched upon already, people who are neurodivergent in some way think differently. That doesn't mean they think incorrectly. And ultimately, if, you're, if your role, which is, which is your role as a lawyer, is to be presented with a load of information and a problem, the goal is to come up with a solution. The goal is not to follow a specific pathway in determining what that solution is. Now, different approaches are not a bad thing. If anything, they can be an asset if you can see things differently. You can understand things differently. 
if you tackle problems differently, you may well come up with solutions that other people don't. But disassociating the idea of neurodiversity and a neurodivergence that a person has with some sort of problem or disadvantage or negative is a challenge that we will face, I'm certain exists already, and is something that I imagine we're going to come across as this issue becomes more uh, in the zeitgeist, as it were. Because bluntly, people are just ignorant of what it means, and we need to try and challenge that ignorance, which can often be one of the most difficult things to do. As we're currently in the realm where persons are now gaining more information about the importance of neurodiversity, do you think that there is a challenge of encouraging earlier testing to those persons who may feel like they're experiencing difficulties? Is that something that that you find is, is rampant? I think there is a serious problem with late testing in people, um, and I think you're right to identify it. And again, it comes back to this completely false assumption that having some sort of neurodivergence is something that holds people back. Because often you've got incredibly talented people who are neurodivergent in some way, and they won't be seen as a, when they're children, when they're very young, they won't be seen as a priority uh, for testing. And that might well be because the tests are most readily given to people who are obviously overtly struggling and of course those people should be tested <laughs> it's important that when someone is obviously struggling it's important to determine whether or not there's some some barrier that's in their way unfairly but what that means is that uh, people who are gifted as well as being neurodivergent can slip through the net and find out much later in life that they have these these differences and these difficulties and it, indeed it may well be that someone finds out in their mid-20s that they've been uh, playing on an, a non-level playing field the entire time and find themselves wondering how much better maybe they could have done. But we need to be realistic as well. Uh, neurodiversity in law is not about to start funding what can be very expensive processes of trying to determine whether or not someone is neurodivergent. It's just simply not within our capability as much as we might like to do it. But hopefully indirectly through raising the awareness of these issues, particularly raising the awareness of the issue of neurodiversity, in quite influential professions like the bar and like solicitors. Hopefully that will help raise the awareness more broadly and encourage early testing to make sure people are on a level playing field from as early as possible. Now, a lack of awareness uh, about neurodiversity can lead some students who want to enter the legal career to believe that there is no space for them to excel and be successful. So it begs one to think that there, there must be a challenge as well in terms of bolstering the confidence of neurodivergent people in a way that they know that they can pursue a successful legal career. What action do you think is needed uh, for the challenge of bolstering the confidence of, of neurodivergent people so that they too know that they can pursue a successful legal career? I think... The primary thing that can be done is just making the subject less of a taboo, making it something that people can talk about freely and openly. Uh, if you can talk about your individual challenges, then you can address them. If you can talk about your individual advantages, then you can show them off in an application. You can demonstrate that they make you an exceptionally talented person who can go and have a fantastic career. I think in terms of neurodiversity in law, the best way we can do that, well, there are two. And the first is, is what we're already in the process of trying to do, 
in particular with those interviews, again, with the coffee talks that are up and coming and the various panel events. And that's we can sort of showcase individuals who have made it into the professions that aspiring lawyers look up to and want to be part of. We can demonstrate that it is possible to get there. Now, that only really solves half the battle because we need to also show that it's not that those people are the exceptions. We need to show that the rule is that people can make it if they're good enough, notwithstanding any neurodivergence they may or may not have. And ultimately, that comes from the second point, which is influencing chambers, firms and other employers of lawyers to show that that pathway does exist. We need, ultimately, the people who bring in barristers and who employ solicitors and who employ legal executives and who employ paralegals to show openly that they're open to open for business, that they want people to apply who are neurodivergent. And that's not something that's directly in our, in our hands, of course, but hopefully by raising the awareness and maybe by applying a bit of pressure here and there or simply by making it known that some forward-thinking chambers has made this a headline issue, maybe that'll pull another few people along with it and, and make some change. But ultimately, it's going to be about changing the minds of the people who actually make the decisions. I think that response leads in quite nicely to addressing the challenge of creating access to the legal profession, because I'm sure that students would need um, assistance with CV building and interviews. You can go ahead and, and explain more on that point if, if you wish. Absolutely. So that is something we can do our best to help with. And I should also point out, there are other organisations that are also doing their best to have help with these things as well. I think mentioning bridging the bar at this point would be a good thing to do because they are going out of their way to enable students, applicants, to have their CVs viewed by people who are, are trained in essentially giving feedback on them and telling them what, what's good and what could do with some improvement. But in terms of neurodiversity in law and what we're doing, as discussed, we've, we're putting on some panel events which will be specifically designed to address, you know, hot tips, top tips on uh, improving your CV, improving your cover letter, more likely for most people improving your pupillage gateway application. And hopefully later down the line, we will do uh, similar events to do with interviews. And of course, we're planning on having a mentoring system in place. Hopefully that will come as, as soon as it is possible to set it up. Uh, but again, I would encourage other people to engage with existing mentoring schemes, be it through the INS or through organisations like um, like Bridging the Bar again, and like Themis, also well worth a mention, because often you will have, as an applicant, and I know this was true for me certainly, uh, you'll have blind spots that you're completely unaware of, and you don't, need to, you don't know you need to address them until someone who knows what they're doing says, oh, you really need to deal with this. And it might just be the way you phrase something, it might be that you speak too quickly, it might be that you don't vary the tone of your voice enough, as I almost certainly haven't done during this podcast. Um, but having someone pointed out to you is really useful and can help you improve. Now, there must definitely be a challenge as it relates to talent management. How do we go about ensuring that the value of recognising neurodivergent person's strength is, is ensured uh, fr from within the recruitment process? How can recruiters develop an action plan to tackle this? Now, recruitment, as you rightly identify, is an absolutely fundamental issue. And recruitment is something that I think it's fair to say that the legal professions might lag slightly behind on compared to society at large. And I, and I say that because they are 
inherently very traditional professions. And that's through no malice at all. Not always through malice, should we say. But recruitment practices are not perfect. Uh, In particular, when we talk about the bar, we need to ultimately recognise there aren't HR departments. You know, this isn't a series of organisations with fully trained, qualified HR people ensuring that a fair process is taking place. This is a bunch of barristers normally giving up their free time to take home a load of pupage applications uh, and mark them at home. Now they'll be blind marked, hopefully, and they'll be marked by a couple of people at least. I think that's mandatory. But that doesn't mean that the marking schemes are up to scratch. That doesn't mean the marking schemes are fair. Uh, And identifying that problem is the first step that needs to be tackled. Contextualised marking is a very useful tool, potentially, to improve grades. But I think, and this is an opinion of mine rather than necessarily of neurodiversity laws as an organisation, but uh, I think the recruitment process currently, as it exists across the legal professions, is geared towards finding the best person and that problems with the processes that are then developed are often problems with how they are equitable and how they negatively impact equality and diversity across a broad spectrum of issues and often intersectionally. Uh, And then there's a sort of patchwork attempt to try and modify uh, existing recruitment processes to try and make up for those those issues. And, And in my opinion, that's almost exactly the wrong way around. The first step in the recruitment process should be trying to work out how it can be equitable from the off, how it's equitable at the earliest stage. Because, and I know this from personal experience, chambers, in my opinion, are very good at filtering down to their favourite, what they consider to be their best candidates from the people they interview. But in my opinion, chambers are very bad at making the decision between that paper stage and who it is that they should be interviewing for the first time. And when a recruitment process is based around a neurotypical person, so using um, aptitude tests, for example, which is starting to become a thing in, in the bar and has been a thing in the <laughs> in the solicitors industry for an awfully long time. Now, often those unfairly disadvantage neurodivergent people in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with their underlying talent or their ability as an advocate or their ability as a solicitor or their ability to engage with clients in a one-on-one basis, but it's simply to do with the way they process information in the short term. Now, reliance on those things is easy to do, um, and, and it's bluntly, it's lazy. Again, it's a way to try and identify the person with the highest talent as measured by your classic neurotypical person. But that would eliminate neurodivergent candidates who are possibly even more talented. I'm not saying I have all the answers, certainly not. I'm not saying that neurodiversity in law will will come away with a perfect set of solutions, but there needs to be a, a, a fundamental gear shift, a fundamental change in the way that recruitment is done across the legal sector, starting with ensuring that it's equitable and then building up from there to find who of those equitably selected candidates who make it through in person and get interviewed, who of those is the best, rather than doing it the other round. Now, I know that there are members of the legal profession who are keenly listening to this podcast and are obviously looking to figure out how they can support neurodiversity within the profession. What action do you think can be employed to build more awareness about neurodiversity? 
primarily talking about it is a good starting point. Just being aware of it, employers especially, but also chambers, going out of their way to try and identify their blind spots and try and understand how they can become less blind to those issues. Making it something that's, again, back to the same issue, not making sure something that's not taboo, something that can be dis- discussed openly by employees and by members of chambers so that they can talk about it and talk about their experiences. If it's included in the considerations of those discussions, if it's made an open topic, then it can be included in broader diversity and inclusion discussions. So advances are being made slowly but surely in terms of race and gender, and that's and that's fantastic, excellent. I mean, these are hugely important issues that we haven't come anywhere near full solutions to yet, but they are at least being discussed. Part of our role in neurodiversity and law is getting neurodivergence and neurodiversity into those discussions so that at least we can start to become aware of it and we can start to become aware of how we can make improvements. So how can employers or colleagues within chambers and firms support neurodivergent people practically on a day-to-day basis? Well, I think that question comes back to something I mentioned earlier, which is that there is massive variance within each of the categories of neurodivergence. And therefore, it's it's not really possible to give a one-size-fits-all answer. The main thing that employers and chambers can do is to create a space where people can talk about their neurodivergence openly, and then they can listen to what they've said and implement a very individualised approach. I mean, it might be the case that a chambers has, for example, a barrister who openly discloses that they have ADHD and they need X, Y and Z adjustments to reach their fullest potential. But that doesn't mean that the next person who comes through the doors who has ADHD will need those same adjustments. They might need something different. Indeed, they might not need any adjustments at all. And certainly the next person who comes in who has dyslexia or dyscalculia will need a different set of adjustments from them. So as much as it's important for chambers and firms to be proactive in the steps that they take, they should also be very good at listening and reacting to the needs of neurodivergent people. So what methodology can be implemented to create recruitment processes which can demonstrate the talents and or strengths of neurodivergent lawyers? Well, again, I think that comes down to um, taking an individualised approach, which is based on the individual needs of whoever the neurodivergent person is. But a really simple thing that firms and chambers can do to encourage that is a change to their application forms. It's very rarely the case that application forms give applicants the opportunity to disclose their neurodivergence unless they identify as having a disability. And as I've said already, lots of neurodivergent people don't consider themselves to be disabled, at least not for the purposes of the Equality Act. And as a result, there are lots of people who either leave it off the form or they're forced to list it as a disability, which might not reflect how they identify. And so a really simple thing they can do is just to add a box on their application forms so that applicants can tell prospective employers what their neurodivergence is and what it means for them and what, if any, adjustments they might need in place. 
it also gives them a really good opportunity to showcase the strengths that might be attached to their neurodivergence and how they've overcome some of the challenges associated with it. And another thing, having put that box onto the application forms, firms and chambers ought to be receptive to whatever reasonable adjustments people might request. And in particular, one thing that we've come across is that firms and chambers will say, oh yeah, sure, we can put in place those adjustments that you've requested. And then sometimes on the day, it transpires that those adjustments haven't been put into place. And it puts applicants into a really difficult position where they're attending an interview or an assessment day or whatever, and they're having to challenge their prospective employers about their failure to implement those adjustments. And of course, nobody wants to be in that position. And what quite often happens is they just go ahead without it. And sometimes that's fine and and they'll cope fine. Indeed, many neurodivergent people have got such good coping mechanisms that it doesn't even show. But in other instances, it puts people on a very uneven playing field and leaves them at a significant disadvantage. Now, I know that throughout the interview, you would have spoken about the actions that can be taken to eliminate the stigma often associated with people who think differently. But obviously, this is an opportunity, you know, to add on any other practical points that you think can be incorporated? Well, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, um, be open to talking about it. And also, if you have uh, people within your chambers who are happy to talk about their experience, listen to it and and promote them, give them a platform. Uh, I think also just engage with with people who are neurodivergent. And we hope that organisations, including employers and chambers, will come forward And they'll be willing to engage with us uh, in an open dialogue about what neurodivergence means and what changes the sector needs in place. And during the interview, you would have mentioned other organisations which promote uh, neurodiversity in law or promote equality and diversity. Just for the purposes of a very quick recap, what other organisations promote equality and diversity and or neurodiversity in law? Well, that's a really important point. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the benefits of neurodiversity in the legal profession, because all of those arguments apply to all forms of diversity. And that's why I think it's imperative that our movement is intersectional. And so we've been working collaboratively with several other organisations that promote equality and diversity. Ollie's mentioned Bridging the Bar, who are doing some fantastic work to improve access to the bar to all underrepresented groups. FEMIS, which is the Intersectional Women's Barristers Alliance. And we've also done an event with aspiring solicitors who work to increase diversity in the solicitors profession. But obviously, we're not going to stop there. We're keen to work with all organisations who promote diversity of all kinds in the legal professions. And so we'd welcome any of those organisations to get in touch with us. There are some other organisations doing brilliant work like Queer Lawyers of Tomorrow, which is a student-led network supporting queer people to work in the legal sector. The INS are doing great work through their scholarship and outreach programmes to encourage access to the bar, and we're already working with them. And we've mentioned that there was a sizeable gap in the market for an organisation representing neurodivergent people. 
But of course, any other organisations that work in the field of neurodiverse people would be very welcome to get in touch with us and we would, we would love to work with them as well. Now, you've both done an excellent job in identifying relevant action plans needed for the elimination of the stigma or the elimination of any barriers to neurodivergent lawyers. I think this leads us on perfectly to inquiring about your upcoming event, Speak Voicing Alternative Thinking, in May 2021. And basically, we we just wish to know how people can get involved. What are the key discussion points for this event? Well, there are going to be a number of events in between now and May 2021. And my understanding of, of Speak, the event itself, it's going to be a hopefully uh, a, a networking event that encompasses all of the work that has been done in the academic year up until that point. And I say hopefully because, of course, we're all living in slightly strange times right now and it may be that a networking event isn't the best format for that. But there will certainly be some event that encapsulates all the work we're doing up until then. Um, and those events in the meantime, or those, those events and those projects in the meantime, include the coffee talks, which have been mentioned already, uh, which are going to be interactive uh, events where prospective barristers and solicitors can ask questions of neurodiverse professionals. Now, that will be only available to members of the organisation, but as Jack has said already, membership shouldn't be seen as a barrier. It's only a fiver. It is less than the cost of a pint in my local, a local I can't even go to right now, of course. And if that is still a barrier for you, uh, understandably, in some cases, uh, please do get in touch and we can work out ways that you can go any fee so if you want to attend these events that are members only join and you'll be able to attend them uh, we're doing uh, as part of our continuing collaboration with themis uh, there's going to be an event with themis quite soon on neurodiversity and intersectionality in the law that's coming up i think at the end of november and depending on when this podcast comes out uh, that may or may, may or may not be in the future or the past we're doing a pupillage panels uh, before the gateway deadline and we're doing um training contract panels before the deadlines of that as well, although that's probably less relevant to members who are listening to this directly. But by all means, if you hear this and you've got a friend who's thinking about uh, training contract applications and they're neurodiverse, uh, send them our way. We'd really appreciate that. That, again, will be for members only. But again, please don't see membership as a barrier. It's more just a way that we know <laughs> we know who's attending. And in the near future, I believe, there's going to be a, a social media takeover day lawcareers.net, where I think we're taking over their Instagram stories. I believe that's on the 10th of December 2020. And if you know what taking over their Instagram stories means, then you're a better uh, social media user than I am. In terms of the key discussion points, as I've said, we'll, we'll really be looking back on the work we've done so far and trying to get people's opinions and thoughts on what we did, how it went well, what we can do better and how we can go forward. Now, what benefits can attendees expect to derive from attending these events? I, I noticed that you mentioned a host of future events. So I'm, I'm sure you can just shed some light on the key benefits that attendees can expect to derive. Well, to an extent, it depends what kind of attendee they are in the sense of whether they're a practitioner or whether they're an aspiring practitioner. Uh, I think benefits for aspiring practitioners to an extent, speak for themselves. Uh, most of the events are about learning how to become 
a lawyer literally how to get through the pathway to getting there. Inherent with an event like that will hopefully be the opportunity to interact with other people going on the same journey. And because, of course, we're expressly talking about these things in the context of neurodiversity, it gives people the opportunity to meet other applicants who are going through similar things, who are making similar applications at similar times and facing similar challenges. And we all need a bit of support when we do these things, um, both generally and specifically when going through the lengthy ordeal of pupillage applications, for example. And if if the attendees are practitioners, well, they may well be involved on on the panel. It's certainly an opportunity for them to to demonstrate either their support for us generally or expressly their allyship of neurodiversity or put themselves out there as a as a, a beacon, as the example of a neurodiverse lawyer succeeding, doing brilliantly. Uh, and we hope that that's seen as an opportunity for practitioners uh, from a sort of practice development perspective. You know, this is, these are early days for neurodiversity in law. This is, these are early days for neurodiversity being discussed in the legal sector uh, at large. I know it's been discussed by certain firms and chambers already, and I wouldn't want to underplay that we're not the first comers at all. But it, it gives people, those practitioners who attend, the opportunity to be seen to be involved with this from the ground up, from the earliest possible opportunity. And that can only be a good thing because that will only demonstrate that they are forward thinking and ahead of the curve. And even from that less sort of practice development mind frame, it's another opportunity to meet future lawyers for current practitioners, and it's another opportunity for them to meet like-minded current practitioners and build their own network. And we have had an invaluable and insightful discussion on the importance of neurodiversity within the legal profession. Thank you to Jack and uh, Oliver for finding the time in your busy schedules to come and have a chat with us. Thank you both. Thank you very much for having us on. Oh yeah, you're, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI. GI.